I am so excited to be in conversation with Anne Lewis. I first met Anne several years back while she was an equal justice artist in residence at Santa Fe Art Institute in 2018. But Anne and I share many mutual friends and I kept being told we had to know each other. Of course, as soon as the connection was made, we have maintained a wonderful friendship and I'm so excited to dig into conversation with Anne and share the dialogue on this broadcast. Anne Lewis is a Detroit-based multidisciplinary artist who uses public space and participatory performances to respond to current social and political issues. As an interdisciplinary activist artist, she incorporates painting, installation, sculpture, and participatory means to explore themes related to American identity, power structures, and justice. Anne's work often includes repetition through graphic elements and a limited color palette while conveying messages around intersectional social justice issues such as gentrification, women's rights, and police brutality. Her work is informed by engaging affected communities and reflects relevant scientific data through intuitive use of concept-specific materials. Through community organizing, participatory performance events, public art, and gallery installations, she continues her dialogue of mindful and social evolution. Now, before I share my conversation with Anne, where we talk about allyship and accompliceship and the abolition of police through a white lens, I want to set us up by sharing an audio clip of activist and educator Joseph Capehart from June 2020, where Joseph is explaining the difference between reforming, defunding, and abolishing the police and why it's important. All right, baby, I think it's super important that we differentiate between abolishing, defunding, and reforming the police. Regardless of which action you support, let's just start by saying what we mean and not conflating ideas to make it more palatable for people. Let's start with reform. By and large, most people would agree that the criminal justice system ain't it, it's not perfect. Police reform looks to specifically introduce positive change to police conduct with things like more training, new technology, so body cams, and community policing. The ideology behind police reform is that while the system isn't perfect, with enough focus and care, we can limit the ability of police officers to abuse their power or endanger the lives of the people they're supposed to protect. Now this is different than the call to defund police because reforms are ultimately going to cost more money, incentivizing a larger budget for the police department. Whereas defunding the police calls for lowering the budget and reallocating those funds to support community health and public services. Those who want to defund the police believe that the more money police have, the more dangerous they become, which we can see in the way that many departments around the nation have become militarized without need, or how having more money to get more cops results in over-policing in poor neighborhoods. Where reformists allocate focus and care to the police departments, those who want to defund the police shift that focus and care to the community itself, hopefully lowering the need for police intervention and subsequently lowering opportunities for any abuse of power. Now where defunding and abolishing the police part ways is in their end game. Most abolitionists would agree that the police should be defunded but only as a means to an end, not as the end in itself. 
Abolishing the police means rejecting the idea that the police department can be altered or reformed in any meaningful way, even with a slash to the budget. Make sure you check out the work of organizations like Critical Resistance and Reclaim the Block to learn more about what abolitionists call reformist reforms, or reforms that constantly need to be revisited and reformed later on. But before we talk about the complexities of abolition, we need to first acknowledge that this is not a new conversation. For many of us, the abolition movement is only on our radar due to the current national spotlight on state-sanctioned killings of black people by police. But people beyond this moment, specifically black women, have been pointing us towards the goals of abolition for decades. Scholars and educators like Mariam Kaba, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Mark Lamont Hill, Angela Davis, these are all people we should be listening to, following, learning from if we're new to the idea or if we have questions. But when we paint this as something new, then we create room for people to dismiss the entire movement as naive. Abolitionists believe that we should be focused on creating the conditions in which police are not needed in our society at all. Nada. Not one of them. And creating those conditions involves something I like to call the three Ds. The first D is defund, which we've already talked about as divesting from police and investing in community-driven programs that promote health and safety. Then we've got decentralized, which means redistributing the functions and responsibilities of the police to groups that are specifically trained in those areas. Currently, the police are expected to meet way too many public needs, from traffic stops to welfare checks to, in the case of George Floyd, the suspected use of counterfeit bills. Even the response to violent crimes could be the responsibility of a much smaller, specialized force. The third D is decriminalize, lowering the bar for what's considered a criminal offense. Things like sex work, drug use, homelessness, or vagrancy are criminal offenses that aren't inherently violent or unsafe, and with proper support and regulation can function without police intervention. That's just a few of the ways that abolitionists work to create the conditions that we need. The things like decarceration and restorative justice that also plays a huge part in what it means to be an abolitionist. But none of those steps or Ds should be mistaken for abolition itself. The goal of abolition is exactly as it states, to abolish the police. And if we're not clear on that goal, we can't ever get there. And if we're not as clear as possible about what we're doing, we run the risk of maybe dismantling and disbanding some police departments, but then creating a system that's just as harmful, or recreating police departments under a different name. It happened with the 13th Amendment of slavery, and it can happen again today. We also have to abolish the idea that the police exists to protect us. We've watched one too many cop shows and have created this collective mythos about who the police are and how they function in our society. We've had this trope about a few bad apples drilled into our minds, so now, when Whenever the institution is challenged, we can't help but retreat and protect the individuals that are associated with it. For abolition movements across history, the biggest barrier has always been a lack of imagination. Some of us, though, have never had these illusions or have them dispelled really early through consistent interactions with an institution with police that sought to brutalize, violate, and scapegoat our communities. But what else is to be expected from an organization that finds its origin in the early 1700s as slave patrol, later evolving into segregation enforcement and keeping freed slaves in check? Police have always existed to protect property over people. They've always protected each other over the communities that they were there to serve. At this point, we're done with them failing. So if you're an abolitionist, say it proudly. Don't water down the movement to appease the sensibilities of people you think might not understand. And if you're not an abolitionist and you identify more with defunding or reforming the police, say it with your chest. Stop co-opting abolition when you're not actually about that life. That does a disservice to everyone. The clearer we are, the easier it is to move forward. That's the one.
so much for being a part of the series, Anne. I'm really grateful to have your voice included. And um, before we really get into it, um, I just want you to kind of introduce yourself briefly and like in a statement, um, tell the world who you are and what you're about. Sure. Well, first, thanks for inviting me. Um, it's an honor to be in conversation with you. Um, I guess uh, I'm an activist artist that's um, focused on a lot of different issues, um, but all sort of within a feminist uh, perspective and lens. Um, I do a lot of work in public space. I feel like um, creating work in public is, is the most democratic way to create because <clears throat> there's so many barriers that come with galleries and museums and that sort of thing. So I really find I am able to make my best work in, in the public realm. Um, but yeah, I started as a street artist and I was always as an activist in that space. And then that sort of has just evolved into more um, social practice-based work, a lot of installation, um, experiential design, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of um, really sort of shifting into um, the experience um, of how do we, I guess what I'm shifting into is more of like shifting into a visionary perspective from like this very reactionary space that I've, I've held for so long um, because I'm finding reactionary doesn't actually solve problems. It just gives more power to the problem that you're looking at. So um, that's sort of where I am right now in my uh, artistic evolution. Mm, and that's beautiful. I love that. Um... I love the evolution out of reactionary work. So I think a lot of us are um, kind of starting to think about that. So thank you so much for naming that. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we need to break down a couple terms um, through your lens in order to set the stage for this conversation and, and give your work the justice it deserves. And in your bio, you do use the term activist artist. And can you unpack what the term activist means in the context of your practice? What does that word mean to you? Um, I believe, you know, when I look at my practice, I'm always, um, with every project that I do, I'm seeking to move towards justice. Um, so there will be different issues that I focus on, whether it's mass incarceration or police brutality or rape or gentrification that are really these systemic issues that have so many layers of racism and, and you know, these sorts of institutional barriers. Um, and while I know art isn't necessarily like the turnkey switch to shifting these things, um, I do find that, um, approaching these problems through a creative lens does allow for more people to fully wrap their head around sort of maybe what the issue is in a way that reading an article or um, listening to a politician might not do. Yeah, definitely. I feel like art is kind of um, a good gateway <laughs> into... Um, yeah. It's, it's like a gateway drug into... Um, recognizing that there is some issues with the way our society functions. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the the focus that I really am 
interested in within your practice is the work you do as a feminist. And um, that's another term that feels really kind of loaded, you know, um, and I, I'm, I'm interested and curious about your relationship to feminism. And for me, feminism has a long and complicated past from what I've witnessed and also what I've read about and um, um, just witnessed from my own community reacting to the term. And it feels like it has an ever evolving definition. And the word feminism can oftentimes feel like it is very loaded. And when approaching communities of primarily like cis hetero men, the term can shut down connectivity or healing. And it, it's been wrapped in this dismissive rhetoric of patriarchal society, which often asserts that feminists are like just angry women, <laughs> you know? And so in another angle, in communities of color or non-white communities, the term feminist can require footnotes and uh, it has a track record as a term to be um, primarily centering white presenting women and their issues. But the term is evolving to become more inclusive and it feels like there's a lot further to go with feminism as we enter into a new era of organizing and producing um, like kind of social collaboration work. So. As a contemporary woman who aligns with the term feminism as an underlying identifier in your work, what does this term mean for you? And how has that meaning shifted through your own life and experience? And how has, um, how do you experience the evolution of the term in your practice um, and how you identify? Yeah, you're right. It's an absolutely loaded term. Um, I, I think when I was a kid, I thought feminists were angry women who hated all men. Um, I think I held that belief for quite a while because I just wasn't educated. And then, you know, you start to sort of see the world and how so many of our problems are literally created by patriarchal structures. And I think you, you know, like at least from my continuous education, like I, this isn't something that like I know all of the answers to and I have a thousand more books to read. Um, but I do find that, you know, the way in which I am centering my understanding of feminism is through the a, a lens of a white woman, right? So I have this element of privilege that is just ingrained and built in. But I think when I'm really approaching what I think of as feminism, it's, it, feminism maybe isn't the right word to describe sort of the approach that I seek, which is um, total inclusiveness of all people, not just women, not just men, not just trans people, but like everybody, right? So when you think about it's for me, it's more of a different approach to things. Um, so I have a series called the matriarchs and it's really about like femme identifying social justice leaders that are approaching the change that we need to see like all encompassing, right? So it's not just centering the women, it's centering like all people with all these challenges that are inherently just like loaded onto us because we're not white men, because we don't have this power that is, you know, carried forth by a very small percentage of the population worldwide anyway. And so I guess I'm 
while I, it is a loaded topic and it's a very uh, complicated thing to really break down, I'm, I guess I just see it as a way of approaching my work that is going to allow me to amplify the voices who are most uh, affected by whatever challenge I'm working in. So, you know, depending on the issue, I think it's, for me, it's really about giving amplification to the stories of those that are most impacted by this sort of white patriarchal violence that has perpetuated for centuries. And so if feminism is the opposite of patriarchy, which I don't necessarily think it is, it's much more expansive than that. It's not just like apples and oranges. It's like apples and, you know, I don't know, continents. Like it's just a totally different fucking thing. So I'm, yeah, I guess I'm just like, again, it's this try to uh, attempt to be more visionary and just really like question everything I I've been taught and everything I think I know. And most definitely like in activist spaces, in community organizing, like shutting the fuck up and listening, <laughs> you know, it's really not about my perspective. It's for me, like being a feminist as a white woman is really about like erasing everything I've been taught and um, honoring and believing and accepting as truth the experiences of people who have less privilege than me and figuring out the best way to support and amplify them. I think that work is so important, especially as a white accomplice. Um, as And I think that that is the, the way that the term feminism can be flipped and like evolve and become visionary once again. I do believe in its birth, it was visionary, um, but we, we shift so much as like a global community that we need to allow our terms to grow with us. And it can become very complicated because language is so stagnant or it can be so stagnant. And as a white woman who identifies as an activist and a feminist, what I find so thrilling about your work is that you you become the accomplice. I mean, can you talk a little bit within this umbrella of feminism about those kind of like teachings you've done for other settler ancestors, other white um, presenting people on how to explore topics such as Black Lives Matter so the labor isn't falling on brown and black people? I mean, that's such an important element of how we learn. So after George Floyd was murdered last summer, um, I created a project called the Anti-Racist Resource Lab with a couple of other folks. Um, Jesse Hayslip, who's a mutual friend of ours, Kate DeCicio, who's an incredible activist artist out of Oakland, <clears throat> um, and Eden Zinak, who's a, a local or community organizer here in Detroit with me. And we're all white presenting. And, you know, for me, it was like, when folks were like, oh my God, this is happening. Oh my God, black people are being killed by police. And it's like, yeah, yes, this has been happening for fucking centuries. Um, but all these folks were like on social media, like asking for resources, you know? And it was like, don't put this work on people that have been traumatized and are literally processing the pain that you might never understand. It's really about like, showing up for each other. And, you know, while we were, we're never going to say we're experts, it was really about like, I have more knowledge than the average person on this topic. Like, how can I help 
guide them into becoming more of an accomplice, becoming an ally, because that's really, I think that's what I really saw in, in the Black Lives Matter movement that happened this summer was, I'm not here to like lead marches and like have these, you know, like be on a stage, like, no, first of all, no. But second, like, it's really important as a white person, I think like our main role, at least my understanding of this is to bring more people into the fold, right? So like, how do I create a space for white identifying folks or non-black people um, to ask questions that they might not know how to ask in certain spaces or feel vulnerable or, you know, like understanding their, their ignorance is, is present and, you know, giving them the space to sort of work through that stuff, you know, um, without having it to be on the shoulders of people of color that are so traumatized, right? So it, it really, I think was an important project, you know, and it lasted a couple of months and, you know, the, as the protest died down, uh, you know, the interest in the project did, and that was, you know, it didn't, it was kind of nebulous and had its own life. So, but I, I do feel like, you know, we talked about um, discrimination housing, we talked about, um, you know, microaggressions, we talked about all these different subsets of elements that are sort of wrapped in the racist, you know, massive bubble. <laughs> um, and, and just gave people the, the space to sort of process things and we did share resources that were created by black indigenous and people of color like it wasn't like hey i'm gonna make you read all this stuff by white people or ask you to it was really and we took those resources from lists of people of color that were like hey you know this is what you think you know like they're offering it for free and or they're offering it you know and just saying like this is what's helped guide me and we're taking those tools and sharing those with other people. So it wasn't a list that we created through a white lens. Um, we were really trying to honor, you know, the perspectives of folks that were going through all this shit and have like really done a lot of amazing work to, to help educate folks like me. Yeah, no, that work was really profound. And I think that, um, more spaces like that need to exist and they are kind of ebb, ebb and flow. Like I think as we are all catching up with how our fellow human relatives are being harmed and in what ways through like patriarchy and through like white supremacy, we have to kind of be agile and be willing to jump in with those resources for communities that will listen to us who might not listen to black and brown voices, you know? So I really do appreciate that work and I've always been interested in um in how it was received through your communities and it, it sounds like it was it was really beneficial and you did bring people into the fold so that makes me very very happy to hear um and that also makes me think of your work and counting and uh, I'll read the description really briefly for those who aren't aware of the project um, that you did. Um, and Counting is a chrono-reactive installation that presents facts around each police-involved death in America during 2016. By offering only the facts, this work gives the viewer an objective and all-encompassing opportunity to face our nation's heartbreaking and ubiquitous problem of death at the hands of police. Anne Counting tells the story of 1,093 lives lost in police-related conflicts that year. 
So I'd love your response to where you are currently with thinking about this work. And how does this project sit in your heart as we continue to witness police brutality and murder daily in America? And how do you feel this work may continue to activate change and awareness? Um, what is your reflection at this time, at this moment, when you have dedicated so much of your life's work to this issue? Hmm. You know, this, this work was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, to bear witness to all of that pain. And I, I think I went into it kind of naively thinking like, oh yeah, this is, a, this is an important conversation to have but I didn't really recognize the toll that it would take on me. Um, and I definitely wasn't in a place where I was like doing self-care <laughs> like at all. Um, so when I look at this piece now, like I'm very grateful that I had the desire to, to do this because I think it really, when it's installed, it's a very different experience than seeing a list of names on a website. You know, you think like 1,093 people, maybe that's not that many people, but then you're surrounded by 1,100 toe tags that tell the story, each individual circumstance, and it's fogging, heartbreaking. Um, and it's, and you know, it just like, I, I first installed it in, I guess, August. So we were sort of like halfway through the year or a little past. Um, and what I, did was I installed it and then added like an additional 30 blank tags at the end, which showed all of, you know, a rough estimation of how many people would die by the hands of police during the, the duration of the show. So it was really an opportunity to, for people to see like, this is what's happened thus far. And this is just going to continue to grow. Right. And it's just going to continue to expand. And I, I look at it now and I just, you know, we've been raising awareness on this issue for so long. And I'm so grateful to see how many people are just like holding our institutions accountable. You know, the protests that happened this summer, like changed the world, right? I mean, we're hearing like how different cities are approaching um, police brutality and like actually making changes and shifts, you know, how significant those are going to be in real life, I guess we'll have to see. But I think, you know, we've been, this piece contributes to the chorus of voices that have been screaming for justice for millennia. Um, and I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't think in 2016, when I made this piece, I could have possibly imagined what's happening now. And I'm so elated to see that white allies and other communities that aren't black folks are showing up to this fight. You know, it's not just a group of activists being like, what the fuck, this is stupid. Nobody's like, nobody's being held accountable. It's literally tens or hundreds of thousands of people marching in the street during a pandemic, right? So that just gives me so much hope. And I think people underestimate the power of protest and it's like, if you think about how dramatically even corporate America is responding to this by, you know, all of the different ways in which they're now like attempting to be inclusive um, or have hired an, you know, a uh, diversity and inclusion specialist who's most definitely like a black woman, right? <laughs> um, 
it's just, I mean, it's a step. And I know that it's not like, we're not where I want to be. We're not where most of us want to be. But this is actually giving me hope that we're, we can possibly even move forward. Because I think we, I felt very like rigidly stuck in one place in terms of like the accountability of our elected officials, um, our police officers, uh, you know, um, CEOs, all of these people in positions of power just were really able to ignore this for so long. And I think now they can't, and there's no going back. This isn't, you know, like the protest did fade, yes, but like the impact didn't. The impact is there and it's stuck. And it, it has, we are having, forcing all of those people to grow and evolve on, you know, a greater understanding of what humanity means and, you know, how they show up in the world. And I think this piece contributed to that, but it just, it gives me a lot of hope to see how, how far we came just this summer, last summer, I guess. And, and, you know, what that means for us in the future. I think we, you know, there will be more protests. Hopefully there will be more change. Yes, definitely. I think that that is part of our growth spurt as human beings right now. And what, from your perspective, if somebody who has dedicated their life to this work, like what is a desired outcome as far as um, police brutality ending? Like what would that look like? What is your future dreaming space of how you can see that hope be resolved into action? Um. I did a series of work in 2015 um, called Our Future Past. And it was all a bunch of police barricades that I'd thrown Molotov cocktails at that were sculptures. Um, so they're all burned and shit, which was really fun to do. If you've never thrown a Molotov cocktail, I highly recommend it in a safe place. Um, <laughs> Definitely <laughs> gonna try that. <laughs> Love it. Um, it, was, it was like the, one of the most cathartic things I've done, but that show was entirely meant to consider a future in which police barricades no longer served a function, right? Barricades are meant to divide communities, to police from people, different, you know, opposing viewpoints from each other. And all of those works then were hung on the walls. So they completely didn't, they couldn't divide a space. And the point was to think about it like, in the future, these will be relics of a past that we no longer, you know, can fathom because we've moved so far from considering um, the elements of, of policing to divide and, and sort of destroy our communities in a way that was entirely intended in their structure, right? I mean, originally police, por police forces in this country were created to manage the slave population so that they wouldn't you know, revolt and leave. So every white man in this country was forced to own a gun and forced to be part of the slave patrols. So that initially created this significant divide just from the get-go. So if we look at our futures, what that looks like to me is taking our children through museums and showing them this past that you and I are still living through but that no longer exists. So if you think about police are often called to mental health uh, crises, they're called to all sorts of different um, emergencies that 
don't require force, don't require this sort of, you know, ingrained uh, aggression that is just like perpetuated so frequently for no reason. I mean, if you think about what George Floyd did, he passed a, a fake $20 bill and he lost his life for that. Like, that is not a logical conclusion. That is not a, um, a response that is, you know, in balance with what happened. And so I, th I think, you know, we consider all of these different ways in which, um, you know, mental health experts can show up to these spaces or, you know, there's de-escalation elements, but, you know, ultimately like we need to abolish police. I will say that until I'm blue in the face. Um, but I think, you know, how we get there is really going to take our communities much longer than you and I wanted to take. Um, because there are so many people that are literally just not there and they just don't understand how this is um, perpetuating so many other crises that could be avoided in communities of color, right? Like the majority white folks aren't going to like look at police officers as a threat because there's like a racial code in there that often, you know, isn't present when you're a white person. So you know, those are the folks that we really need to bring on board. And that was really part of what the anti-racist resource lab was, was about giving folks who maybe like, I know we need to reform police, but I don't want to abolish it because of X, Y, Z. And it's like, okay, well, this is, this is the difference between those two things. And it's not like, we're just going to get rid of all response to everything. And our world is going to turn into chaos. You know, it was, it, so when I think about our futures, I, I think about like, what, what would our world look like without them? Like how different would communities of color exist in the world without that, right? You don't have like a significant portion of black men going to prison and you know, the, um, the women that are raising their kids are the ones, only the ones raising their kids now. And you don't have a brother that's around. You don't have an uncle, you don't have a father, you know, all of those things are that, if that's gone, like how do those communities thrive and grow in in a very different space and way because those people are present, right? Or they're not, they haven't been murdered by a police officer. That pain and suffering that is like exponential when someone dies like that isn't there. That trauma doesn't carry on to another generation. You know, there's so much, there's so many ripple effects that happen because of this brutality that's so unnecessary that we can't see. Um, and just like really hasn't been explored um, on a mainstream level. So, yeah, I think about I think about how those lives would be different and how people would thrive and how how much more equity there would be in our culture um, in terms of economic, social, and otherwise um, that just isn't there because of this unnecessary force. That's some real shit to think about, you know, and I feel like I just think about some of my relatives who are more conservative um, and more white and more like in a space where they wouldn't know how to respond to the term abolish, abolish the police. They would they would put up a wall um they would put up like a mental barrier and not be in conversation i think that there's a lot of defensiveness in america 
And there is a lot of binary and that binary coding is brought on by patriarchy. You know, the fact that we even consider feminism and patriarchy as like two sides of a coin, it really specifically points to the fact that we're all kind of navigating how to break out of this binary that our society has put on us. So with, with, with all of that kind of consideration around how, um, triggered like whiteness is around like like letting go of police state and like um, listening to black and brown voices and indigenous voices and putting them center do you think art is that bridge or part of the bridge or part of a pathway to like allow people to respond to these ideas without closing down or shutting down like is that why you make this work like what I'm just trying to like tease out the relationship to what art has within this, within this tender place. You know, it's interesting because I have so many relatives that are similar and the amount of conversations that have broken down are too numerous to count. You know, I've, I've attempted to have these conversations with, with my family over and again for years and there's just never been a budge. There's never been a con- like a way in which they were able to identify and understand from an empathetic space, like what, why this needs to change. And so I think, you know, art can be a really abstract way to shift people's experiences. Um, it's going to do that in a very individual way, right? But folks that are really on that far side I'm, I don't want to say that they're incapable of changing, but they really have been so, and I'm going to use the word brainwashed because I really think they've been brainwashed to be so fearful of any kind of change that, you know, when I think about, and I've, I've kind of taken like a pretty significant step back from creating work in the last year and a half, I guess, because I've really been grappling with what's my place in this conversation as a, as a white accomplice, like it's a very um, complex space to be holding that conversation and who am I talking to, I guess. Um, I I think there is a capacity for people to understand this shift and become a part of it, but it's like incremental. It's sort of like a gradient and I've been using gradients in my work a lot recently in, in public space. And I, I keep thinking that about that. Like there are, are so many people that think it's a black and white issue. And they think that there is like, okay, you're either going to keep police or you're going to abolish them. And there's no in between and abolish is bad and keeping police is good. And I want good. So I'm going to stay over here instead of like truly understanding the nuance of the circumstances and the situations and sort of what we're asking for. Right. And I think we've gotten to a point in our sort of like Twitter micro worlds where people have attention spans of like one to two minutes and then that's that. Like you can't get into a nuanced conversation in that space. You, you know, you can't have like a, a clear, you can't give people enough information to make a, an informed decision in this very like short, ten, you know, short uh, attention span sort of social space that we're in, which is really, I think, a big part of why people, why we're so polarized. Um, 
I don't think I'm answering your question. <laughs> um, no, you are though. I mean, this is like, I think that the answer is to like recognize the gradient, right? Like um, to, and that's what your work is trying to push, right? And also you reflecting on how as a white woman artist, like you step back a little possibly as part of your practice, you know? And I think stepping back doesn't mean being silent. It means like focusing your energy on not being on the front line, but supporting those who need to be on the front line, possibly. Absolutely. And, and I think like to the, the gradient discussion, the more people that you sort of pull in that are like-minded, but maybe not actively showing up for this, they're going to talk to people who are a little less like-minded than you, but are, you know, they're sort of peers that are maybe a little bit more conservative. And that's sort of like, I think how that shift happens is it really has to go through the, the, the gradients of liberal to conservatism. You know, it has to, you have to be able to, you're not going to change somebody who's all the way in the other end if they don't know anybody else who understands this or is participating in it, right? Like it's not socially acceptable for them to be the outlier that's going to go 180 degrees. So you really, it's about like sort of working backwards. And I think that's, it's, it's far like more likely as a white person for me to get a white person to have this conversation that's maybe a little bit more conservative or also very worried that they're going to say the wrong thing or be, you know, um, criticized or canceled. You know, this whole cancel culture obsession on the right is just hilarious, but that's the fear. You know, they're so, that is such an embedded element of every, how they see the world. The filter is so based in fear that you really have to be, I hate to say it, but like those folks are super fragile. And the only way that you actually get them to like, you know, become part of the changes is to like deal with them delicately, which is not what I want to do. <laughs> well, I think as a white woman, that's a very important position for you to do because you have the patience and you you understand what white fragility is um, in a way that not necessarily black and brown people have the patience for or need to or deserve to deal with like white tears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they're real they're very real uh, yeah yeah exactly and I think you know I also have an understanding of sort of their perspective in a way that black and brown folks just don't have you know like the innate privileges that white folks just assume and don't recognize like can't even see how that affects other people like that's just the norm and this is normal. And this is why are we changing the normal? It's fine. I understand that because I used to think like that. I used to like, I didn't necessarily think about how to disarm that as a kid or as a young person that wasn't educated. But like, if you were to tell me like I needed to change a bunch of shit because you know, this wasn't fair or right. Like I probably would have not understood why. But, you know, you have to really be able to, like, speak to folks in a term and, you know, a space where they can really understand it. So it's about having that shared experience and being able to sort of address that through the conversations in a way that helps people reconsider things, I guess. It just yeah. takes time. 
Yeah, I think that's really that's really interesting too. And like I I think one thing that is a cu curiosity for me, I guess, is like how um as you're talking about not being reactive and about like being more like vi in a vision in a visioning state for your practice. Um and talking about like mental health and wellness, like as a white person, as a white accomplice, like how do you like combat self-hatred you know i i know a lot of my peers who are even mixed heritage like are so dismissive of their whiteness and don't acknowledge that part because of the pain within them that whiteness has caused in our society so is there is there any insight that you might be able to offer to our communities who are combating with like self-hatred as they get quote unquote woke into like how to be a white accomplice yeah that's i think what's holding the majority of people back and i i mentioned her earlier but i'll i'll repeat it kate decisio is doing really incredible work on examining our white self-hate and recognizing our participation in all of this, you know, the myth of white supremacy, which is what we call it, and really starting to reckon with like, we have so much pain because we're, we, we've literally come from people who have, I don't know, like, should I make a list of raped, pillaged, stole land, um, enslaved people, like, you don't do those things without having pain. Like, you can't just pretend that that shit doesn't hurt you, right? So we're coming from generations of people who've carried all of that, and which I think is a really significant reason why white silence is so pervasive, and people don't talk about race, and they don't talk about their pain, they don't talk about their individual problems, they don't share anything, because it's scary, right? And it's like white, we're so fragile that like talking about any of that stuff, we might just shatter into a million pieces. So we don't talk about it, right? But like, we're all carrying that and nobody's addressing it. Nobody's looking at that and being like, how have I carried this? How have I perpetuated this? But like, and then how do I change it, right? Like you really have to do the inner work of recognizing that whether or not, you know, like our individualism culture has taught us like, oh yeah, well, you're, you're not racist because you don't, you know, like do horrible racist things, but you carry racism within your soul. Like it's embedded into all of us through our culture, but also through our ancestry. So we really have to do that work on an individual level of recognizing that and spending time in that really uncomfortable space that white folks hate to be in because it's really easy to not be in it because the norm is centered around our experiences. But we really need to spend the time to like unpack all that shit and then, and then see, you know, sort of like how we can more fully show up as accomplices and allies, right? But until we do that work, which is challenging, and I think it's something that you never really stop doing. It's kind of like being, you know, anti-racist. It's like, you're gonna continually find things and need to address and look at them and really, you know, spend time sitting in that space. But it's, um, yeah, it's a lot of individual work that for the most part, I don't think white folks, A, know we need to do because we don't get it because we can't access that space in ourselves because we've never talked about it. So if you don't talk about it, you don't know it's there. So yeah, I think the conversations um, 
are really important to be pushing folks forward into examining their whiteness and sort of the pain that we all carry. And then really examining like, how do we forgive ourselves, right? This whole discussion that you're talking about, about self-hate, like, yeah, like a lot of white people are super ashamed of what position we hold in the world, but we're not doing the work to like dismantle that individually in ourselves. We can say we're, you know, like protesting and doing all of that work on the outside, but like we really got to do that work inside first, or at least in conjunction. Yeah. And that, that makes me think of this, um, this quote from your bio that I'd like to just um, read really quickly because it just really um, struck struck a chord in me. Through community organizing, participatory performance events, public art, and gallery installations, she continues her dialogue of mindful and social evolution. So this phrase just hits home on so many levels for me as an organizer and femme, and I'm curious what mindfulness and social evolution mean for you in your work? Like how might you further define these terms in your approach to community engagement and beyond? It almost feels like this statement activates a notion of self care and like deeper community care. And so as we're talking about doing the work, what, what, what has the work been for you? What, what is mindfulness and social evolution to you? Well, I think the old adage is if you don't take care of yourself, you can't show up for other people. It's really, really important on this level. You know, you can like run yourself ragged going into every protest, but are you really there? If you're like exhausted and you're not like presently participating in things. Um, and I think I was definitely guilty of that for a long time of just like showing up and showing up, but like, with what, like how much was I there? Um, and so yes, self-care, which, you know, I think is like such a weird term at this point. Cause it's like been so overused, but what that means for me is like sleeping a lot. Like I need to sleep a lot. And if I don't get enough rest, I'm useless to everybody. <laughs> so first of all, but I think the, the mindfulness and social evolution that I speak of in this statement has been in my practice since the beginning. Like when I was out tagging, I would write evolve forwards and backwards hundreds of times on a door or wherever I could, because I literally have just been like, what the fuck we need to move forward. We felt so stuck. And so <laughs> yeah. I've been carrying that for a long time, but I think like the social evolution shows up in my work by again, offering these spaces of what our future can look like. How do we imagine what we want you know we can't create the world we want without first imagining it and then documenting that and then communicating that to people right so things really change when we share ideas and we um whether that's through artwork through podcasts through conversations um through books whatever it might be but like we really have to be able to be vulnerable enough to share those dreams and be willing to change those dreams as we evolve and our understanding evolves. You know, I think my understanding of feminism is very different than it was five years ago. And so my understanding of the future that I want through that lens has changed dramatically. And I think we also have to be really cognizant of, you know, I think we get really stuck in these like, okay, well, it has to be like this and that's that. And we can't, uh, we don't allow ourselves to 
to grow from there. And oftentimes people kind of get stuck in a, a movement or an idea and like there's no way for it to um, respond to the changing elements of what's going on. But like change is the only static thing, right? It's like, it's always, change is the only thing that always happens. So we have to be, I think, flexible, resilient and sort of be agile enough to, to understand that social evolution is gonna evolve um, and change perpetually. Um, and I think the mindfulness is really, I really need to work on mindfulness. I'm, <laughs> that's, I think that's the hard part for me. Um, but it's, you know, you really have to be fully present and take time. And I think when we're working um, on uh, really challenging community issues, like I spend a lot of time thinking and researching beforehand, but then, you know, when I'm actively engaging in these, in these community engagement elements that I do, I go home and I write about it and I sit and I think about it and I really give myself enough space to like reflect on what happened that day so that I can show up and be a better version of myself in that space the next day. Because that's really as white people, like we got to really show up and be mindfully present and, uh, you know, be very aware of how our presence changes the dynamic um, of, of, you know, these different spaces. So you know, I think I've lived in Detroit for the last four years and it has completely transformed the way in which I show up in spaces because it's an 85% black community. You know, I think before I never thought about it. I never thought about like what my presence was doing to other people in the room. And so I think that mindfulness has really taken root in my practice now. And it's, um, it's something that I really encourage folks to, to spend time thinking about because that that isn't something that I was aware of. And it's, it's really transformed the way in which I approach my activism and I approach my community organizing. That's, that's deep. I think that we do, we have to be as we're accomplices, as we're allies for each other, you know, and I don't, and I, I want to call this out right now. Like, I don't think only white people can be accomplices and allies. Like, we need to do this across the board for each other, you know. And I think mindfulness is really important because it's not, it's taking yourself, it's like not being, it's not being self-centered, you know. It's like being community-centered. And it's, it's recognizing you are part of a whole. And so I really appreciate you kind of saying that as a as a seed or a nugget of advice and yeah i just wanted to thank you in general for for being on this broadcast and we're going to um wrap it up but i wanted to ask you i'm i i think like something really important as far as like gifting things forward is to ask you to share three pieces of media literature podcasts um any kind of dialogue that you're um, ingesting right now that you can share forward with the people listening here. So if it's a book, an audio book, podcast, is there is there three things you'd like to share for people to check out? I definitely have one thing that I would love to share. It's a community res uh, like research project that was done by a woman named Rebecca Campbell out of Michigan State University. I will send you the link. But it was a when the Detroit rape kit crisis happened here, they found 11,000 rape kits in 2018, 
eight that were just never tested. Um, and they then subsequently started testing them. She did an entire research project based on that process. So for folks to really understand the sort of systemic racism within the reproductive health um, movement and sort of how black and brown and indigenous women were totally just put aside because they weren't considered good victims. It's a really important thing to um, really understand. Um, I'm actually reading, I can't believe this is the first time I'm reading this, but Women, Race and Class by Angela Davis. This is like a foundational text that I should have probably read a long time ago. I'm reading it now. It's um, part of the Interfem uh, book club that I, I host. And where can people join that? Or is it open to the public, yeah. your Interfem book club? Yeah, um, it's through my Instagram. So it's just Interfem book club. Um, and, you know, we kind of post what we're reading and um, people can, you know, reach me there or reach me through my my regular handle. Um, but yeah, we basically mm -hmm. read books centered on uh, women in uh women of color, black women and indigenous women and femme identifying voices that are um, really pushing conversations around equity and, 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 you know, all of the challenges that we face as a nation right now <laughs> on that front. So um, I guess there's a third one that I need to think through. Um, and we'll give it all to us. Um, <laughs> what's, what's in your I'm, rotation? I'm literally looking at like a thousand books right now. Um, this one's good. I love oh all your God. lists too. Behind <laughs> behind Anne is just like a wall of that's a trying to projects. Like break down into smaller bites because it's enormous. Um, against our will um, is sexual trauma in American art since 1970. Um, it's compiled by Vivian Green Fried, and it's um, it talks about. Uh, Faith Ringgold, Judy Chicago, Kara Walker, um, Suzanne Lacey, and it's just all of these um, women from across the board talking about sexual trauma in American art and sort of their processes. So that's what I'm focused on right now. So that's what I'm reading. Um, and it's uh, heavy stuff, but worth it. Yeah, is it is interesting? Is it all primarily white artists who are in that nope. text? No, nope. that's it's awesome. A There's pretty wide ranging group of artists. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, um, right. Exactly. Against that's very will. easy for you know the the feminist art movement of the 1960s and 70s, very much centered white white women artists. But yeah, the conversations mm -hmm. in this are are pretty across the board. That's nice. Thank you. Awesome, Anne. Well, thank you so much. It's been really fun. Um, and yeah, we need to hang out <laughs> in general. In, in real life, one day. We're all, I know. One day. Know, safe from whatever's happening out in the world. But I just want to say thank you for including me in this. It's been a total joy to talk to you about you know, the world in general and sort of what we're, what we're battling as activists. And um, yeah, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Mm -hmm.